Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today on Somewhere in the Skies, we are joined by astrophysicist Adam Frank to discuss The Little Book of Aliens. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Adam, welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. It's my pleasure to be here. Pleasure is all mine, man. I had the amazing opportunity to read a advanced copy of your new book, The Little Book of Aliens, and I knew I had to talk to you, man, because not only do you cover one of our obvious favorite topics here at Somewhere in the Skies, but you cover it in a very hopeful, optimistic, but most importantly, uh, scientific way. So that's really what I want to break down with you tonight is um what are aliens what could aliens be if we do eventually somehow make contact you know there's many people on this planet who believe we have already that's not really what this conversation is about today i really want to dig into um a lot of what you believe as an astrophysicist i might add uh what these alien intelligences could be how they could possibly get here how we can search for them all of that. But um, obvious question, before we even get to all of that, um, origin story time. Uh, how did you get interested in astrophysics? And um, yeah, if you don't mind, give us a little bit of, uh, I guess, your resume, if that's cool. Right. <laughs> so um, I got started in astrophysics as a five-year-old. Uh, I found wow. my dad's I have this really clear memory of this. I have found my dad's um, or wandered into my dad's library and he was a big science fiction fan. He was a writer and he had those pulp 1960s science fiction magazines like Isaac Asimov's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, amazing stories. And um, I remember looking at the covers of those things, you know, like with, and they had pictures of like guys bouncing around on alien planets and Michelin tire man spacesuits and rocket ships, you know, with flame blasting out the back and bug eyed monsters. Uh, and that was that was it. I was done. Like that was I've never wanted to do anything other in my life than be an astrophysicist and study the stars. So um, that was the beginning. And then my dad also started putting science fiction in my hands uh, early on. I remember him giving me like when I was 10 or 11, the golden the, the big book of the golden age of science fiction, which was Asimov and um, uh, Heinlein and, the, and those people. Uh, and then Dune He gave me Dune. So I grew up with science fiction ideas. I still am. I, you know, as a kid, I watched every science fiction show there was. And back in those days, there wasn't much. Um, so as you can see here, you know, Star Trek, uh, back in the mid seventies, when I was coming up, the Star Trek, the show, the reruns would be on at four o'clock and seven o'clock. So I watched every episode of those first three seasons of Star Trek, like 30 times. 
Um, wow. So, yeah, so I grew up with this, you know, real passion for space. Um, and then I learned that, you know, I had some facility with mathematics, you know, and physics. I really fell in love with mathematics and physics. So I went to, to school to study uh, physics. I became a physics major, then went to graduate school, also in physics, because it was really theoretical physics that really, that was the way, that was the approach I wanted to take. I knew I was bad with machinery, right? So you never <laughs> wanted to put me in front of a, a, a telescope. Um, and I always had a strong interest in life in the universe and astro, what we now call astrobiology. But back in the day, there wasn't much going on there. There was just SETI, essentially. And SETI was still kind of marginal. Um, so uh, I pursued, I became a computational uh, fluid dynamicist. I studied things like how stars form out of clouds of gas, how they get torn apart. Um and all through, you know, so that was most of my career. I ended up at the University of Rochester, where I ran a research group that does this. I'm a professor there. Um, but I always had that interest in life in the universe. And then, you know, starting in the 1990s, astrobiology, as we, for reasons we'll talk about, starts to grow again. And I jumped on board. I By the mid-2000s, um, I started doing, I turned my research group to studying exoplanets, the atmospheres mm -hmm. of exoplanets, and then dove all the way in, started to really get involved in astrobiology. And, and now, again, something we can talk about, but in 2019, a group of us applied for a grant to NASA to study what are called technosignatures. Uh, and we got the first grant. NASA, again, we'll talk about this. NASA really was not giving any grants. Lots of money to study dumb life, you know, microbes or uh, what we call biosignatures on alien planets, but not much money to study intelligent life. And our grant was really one of the first ones ever, uh, or at least in a very long time, that NASA gave to study uh, the possibility of finding technological life, technological civilizations. And so since then, our group has done really, I think, really amazing, interesting work pushing the boundaries on that problem. That's amazing. And yes, I do want to touch on technosignatures a little later, because I think that is really, you know, the advent of a new way of searching for yeah. this intelligent life Absolutely. out there, um, which I think is very exciting. you got a lot of different groups trying to tackle that approach right now. So uh, first of all, congratulations. That's amazing you. that your group was one of the first. And uh, and the fact that NASA is finally getting right. um, so much more proactive with this topic of searching right. for life. Um, they're also apparently searching for UFOs. So that's kind of what I want to touch on first here with you, Adam. You do start the book actually with um, some chapters that do concern the topic of UFOs or UAP is there right. now sort of calling them. So um, that's my first question for you. In terms of the book, what made you want to start the book talking about UFOs? And uh, what are some of your thoughts on the topic of UFOs, especially in the last few years when it's really become Things more mainstream than ever? Yeah. yeah. What do yeah. you make of all yeah. that? And what made you want to decide to start the book with that? Well, you know, one of the, the, the book is about, about, you know, it's the little book of aliens, right? So it's all about aliens. It's about our conception of aliens. It's about the history of our searching for aliens. And, you know, the main reason I want to have that pull back and have that background is because from the scientific point of view, we are at the cusp of finding alien life, whether it's intelligent life or microbial life. You know, the, the, the profound explosions in the science of astrobiology mean that you really need to look at the big picture. And, you know, UFOs have been a big part of the popular conception of a life in the universe. And so I wanted to run through that history. I also wanted to explain to people why 
as a scientist, like how scientists view the subject. And the history has a lot to do with it. Um, so, you know, I am very skeptical that UFOs have anything to do with alien life, uh, you know, life in the universe. And we can talk more about this. Um, but but certainly when you look at the history, you can see how much of our popular conceptions were driven by the presence, uh, you know, by, by the, the what goes on in the UFO community. Um, you know, I, I talk about the government reports and, you know, certainly... Because the government, though, you know, those, though, that long history of government reports, which has a lot to do, I think, with shaping where we are now, um, you can see because it was the Cold War, the government was certainly less than transparent about what it was doing with UFOs. The government was very happy to um, use UFOs as part of its Cold War subterfuge. You know, this was, this was a battle to the death with the the USSR with the Soviet Union and so you know the 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 uh, government was certainly willing to you know to to use misinformation um when it came to UFOs so i wanted to cover that stuff as well i wanted to give people the history of those reports um but also understand yeah sort of what was going on with them and then finally we get to the modern era with UAPs and i really wanted to track through what was going on with the UAP. So people had a firm understanding of where we are now, um, especially when it comes to, you know, things like uh, the NASA panel, um, which I'm all for. Again, I'm skeptical of the fact that I, I don't think UFOs and UFPs have anything to do with the alien life. But, uh, you know, I'm a scientist. And if we can collect the kind of data that scientists require um, in order to judge. So, you know, the thing about this is scientists have, we're, we're brutal with each other. We're really mean to each other about when it comes to the link between data, some data and uh, a conclusion, you know, a claim, right? We are very, very mean to each other. And, you know, if you've ever stood in front of the hardest thing as a scientist is have to, to stand in front of like, you know, a bunch of people who are much smarter than you and argue that you have a piece of data that is linked to a conclusion as they shred every possible, you know, nook and cranny and nuance in that link. Um, so the good thing about, I think, with the NASA panel, which is, you know, the NASA panel and the Galileo project and such is that now, you know, we can begin the process of collecting the data that we need to try and link to just figure out at all what these things are about. So, you know, I think it's good that the uh, pilots now feel free, you know, they, there's, there's not this stigma the, to talk about it. Um, cause that way, you know, that's the first step to collecting data. But as I say, you know, one of the things I wanted to cover in the, um, in the book is how science goes about its business. So people can understand how science will link a piece of data to, uh, you know, or a collection of data to a conclusion, because listen, if somebody comes and tells me a story that they saw something in the sky, I'm not going to tell them they didn't, I wasn't there. Right. But science is about public knowledge, right? It's about knowledge, you know, it's uh, 400 or so years ago, we came up, human beings came up with this amazing way of interrogating nature, of getting into a dialogue with nature, whereby we can pull out conclusions that we can all go, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, gravity, the, you know, the, the acceleration due to gravity is 9.8 meters per second squared. Anybody can test that, right? <laughs> and so that is what we're looking for. If we want to understand what, uh, you know, UFOs or UAPs are, we need to build that same kind of uh, process, um, which will require probably building new instruments and having a rational search strategy and having a rational, well-crafted way of sorting through the enormous amounts of data you're going to get from that. 
So that's why I wanted people to understand. I wanted people to sort of see the history, see it as scientists see it and see, you know, from the scientific perspective, what would you actually need to have data to go one way or the other? Like as a scientist, if the data is good enough, I'll go in whichever direction the data is going to go, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I would hope that would be the true for UFO. People are really excited about UFOs as well. If the data really doesn't point to, you know, if you don't, if you can show that things aren't moving at Mach 5, Mach 500 and making right-hand turns, if the data doesn't support that, then okay, you know, it's something else. And no matter what, what I really want people to, in the UFO community to understand, though, is that, um, you know, the stuff on the science end, the stuff I'm going to talk about with techno signatures and biosignatures is super exciting. Like, you know, we're up poised to be able to have, to find the possibility of alien life, whether it's intelligent civilizations or microbial life to me it's the same they're both equally mind-blowing um that we're we're on the edge of doing that like if you're you know if you're alive today there's a good shot that there's going to be data relevant to that question coming down the pike in your lifetime that's amazing that gives me so much hope that we might live to see that day where many people in the past haven't and um what, what I think is really cool too, Adam, is not only do you cover the history of the UFO topic, but you also cover the history of those who did ask that big question, are we alone? Um, you know, you bring up such things as the Fermi paradox, you bring up the Drake equation. Um, these are big buzzwords that us in the UFO field either love or hate, depending on where you lay <laughs> in the grand scheme of belief, I guess. But um yeah, could you maybe run us through a little bit of that, the history of our search for alien life throughout the years and how, how that can kind of, um, I guess, propel us forward as right. we continue to look for new ways? Yeah, what's really amazing is this question is ancient, right? As I talk about in the book, you know, you can see the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, like Aristotle and Democritus, you know, in a steel cage death match, you know, <laughs> arguing over whether or not, you know, the earth is special or whether, every, you know, there's planets with life throughout the universe. And so this question people have been arguing about for 2,500 years, but it was only the 1950s really that there was this amazing decade, 1950 to 1960, when so much of the foundational science, the foundational questions were asked. So like the Fermi paradox was this idea that Enrico Fermi, you know, the, the paradox itself is just from, you know, a, co- a lunch conversation that he was having uh, with uh, colleagues at Los Alamos. But the basic question that Fermi recognized early on was, well, you know, why isn't the universe full of detectable aliens? Why aren't they here? Or why haven't we found signals of, um, of uh, you know, of, of, of intelligent civilization? Because what Fermi realized, like in a split second, was that if they're even one, star-faring civilization, even if it was, you know, for even if the speed of light really is a speed limit, um, then even, you know, if they're moving at a tenth of the speed of light in a timescale very short compared to the history of the galaxy, they could reach every star system in the galaxy. So, you know, his question was, why aren't they here? And another, you know, so that's what I call the direct Fermi paradox. The indirect Fermi paradox is something that's also called the great silence, which is, well, we've looked um, but why haven't we found any? So, of course, if you're a UFO fan, you're going to argue that they are already here. Um, if you're an astronomer like myself, you're going to focus on the um, the indirect Fermi paradox, which is why haven't we um, heard anything? But, of course, the answer to that one, that one's got a real clear answer, which is we haven't looked. 
people have this idea that like, oh, every night astronomers, you know, take their radio telescopes, you know, like Jodie Foster in contact and listen for, you know, signals of alien civilizations and nothing could be further from the truth. There's never been any money in SETI. And part of that is because SETI got pinged with some of the more wackiness that happens in the UFO community. And they, you know, NASA wouldn't fund SETI because Congress kept burning them for it. So um, there's never been a whole lot of SETI done. In fact, actually, if you look at all the SETI searches that have ever been done, um, uh, you know, and compare it to like the ocean, like if the ocean is all of the stars we need to search for alien life, so far we've looked at a hot tub worth of water, right? And if you looked at a hot tub worth of water and didn't find any fish in it, would you then go, well, there's no fish in the ocean. So, um, so the Fermi paradox is one of these foundational ideas, which still today we deal with. And then there's the Drake equation, right? So Frank Drake, uh, so the, the, the 1950s begin with Fermi and they end with Frank Drake doing his, the first really astrobiology search of any kind, the first astrobiology experiment ever taken, which was Project Ozma, where he convinced his colleagues uh, at the radio observatory to let him use the this new instrument and look for, he looked at two stars looking for signals of alien life. He didn't find any, um, but that launched the, that launched SETI, that launched the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. It was the first time anybody at any, anywhere had ever done a search for life elsewhere other than the Earth, and and then in '61, you have the great, this very important conference on interstellar communications. It's actually it's a workshop. There's seven guys at it, uh, but including a young Carl Sagan, and that's where the Drake equation comes up. Drake was trying to formulate a, an agenda for this meeting, the first ever meeting on you know co- you know communications with uh, extraterrestrial civilizations or finding extraterrestrial civilizations, and he needed an agenda, and he broke the problem up into like these seven different pieces. And he wrote them down as an equation whose whose solution would be the total number of of intelligent technological civilizations in the universe. And the way he broke that problem up, first asked how many stars are there, and then how many stars have planets, and then how many planets are in the right place for life to form, how many uh, planets where life can form, does it actually form, bing, 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 all the way down. He broke the problem up into these seven pieces, which still today are foundational. We still use that background in how we organize the astronaut, uh, the astrobi, a lot of astrobiological sort of thinking. So that that first decade is important for everybody, for people who are into UFOs, for people who are into just astro, the scientists are into astrobiology. That's when a lot of the core ideas were laid down that we're still working with today. Because in science, science is very um, conservative. I just wanted to put this in. You never give up on a good idea, right? And so that's why those ideas are still around today. Interesting. Um, well, on the spot, I want to ask you, Adam, um, within sort of those time periods, you also had this thing called the wow signal. Um, what do you make of that personally, as an astrophysicist, as an astronomer? Um, that was one of the one moments where I think a lot of those people who really want to believe yeah. that we got a signal, um, that we got a signal, um, yeah. supposedly. What do you make of the wow signal? I'm not wild about the wow. <laughs> I'm not wow about the <laughs> You're wow. Not wow because it was one off. Like it, you know, yeah. they it happened once. I mean, the exciting thing about it was it looked exactly like what you'd expect it to look like if it was a signal. But you know, a one off, you can't do anything with a one off, like in science, right? So mm-hmm. you know, and the people have gone back and they've looked at that source again, you know, that that location on the sky again and again and again, and they've never found anything else. Um, and so you just you can't do anything with that. Whereas the new stuff. 
that we're developing now, the techno signatures, which is based on entirely different approaches to the problem, that won't be a problem. If we find a techno signature in the way that we think we're going to, you know, the way what we're planning, you'll be able to go back and look again and again and again. It should always be there. Right. Because we're not looking for sort of like radio beacons that somebody's like pointing at us to say, hey, we're here. We're going to be looking for the indirect uh, signatures of biological or technological activity. So, you know, just like, you know, civilizations or biospheres going about their business. So, um, so that's why the wow signal, you know, if it's only a one off, I can't do anything with it. I can I can be like, whoa, that's really cool. But then I'm stuck. You know, yeah. with arguing over whether that one thing that happened was, you know, the cool thing about science is that every, somebody said this to me one time, in science, a good theory or a good result is like putting a quarter in and getting a dollar back out, right? It takes you, it leads to the next question that you can try and answer. The wow signal, you put a quarter in and you got nothing back, right? Because it was just nowhere to go. Okay, we went back and looked and we didn't see anything. So, you know, it was exciting but it just, it was a dead end. I hate when that happens. I hate when you I don't get your happens. money back. <laughs> Such <laughs> a good point. <laughs> Where's my candy bar? <laughs> yep, yep. That's when you tip it over. That's when you tip it over. Um, well, you also cover, Adam, uh, sort of these hypotheticals about how life, if it is out there, how it could possibly get to, let's say, our solar system. Um, and these are big questions. And these are big questions that a lot of skeptics often will put in front of UFO people and say, there's no way. There's no way that they would be able to travel these vast distances. Um, so you do tackle this issue in the book of how could an advanced civilization um, possibly get here? Is that something you can briefly touch on for us? Yeah, yeah. Because I, what I wanted people to see is like, you know, of course, when we talk about, you know, a, you know, alien civilizations or civilizations that have been around a lot more, we don't know what science they have, right? And right. so, but you also can't just sort of wave your hand and use that as an excuse to say anything's possible. Because the thing is, we do know a lot of physics, right? And any mm -hmm. physics that the aliens have has to sit on top of the physics that we do know, right? So, for example, the second law of thermodynamics, right, which says that if you use energy, you're always going to generate some heat or generate some waste, that law, I mean, we have not seen anything that would ever tell us that that law is going to be overcome, right? So anything that the aliens do is going to have to sit on top of the second law. So that means you got to do some work. If you want to extrapolate the, you know, the science that we have now, um, you got to do some work to connect it to the science that we do have because we've got some pretty amazing science. Like we've done mm -hmm. for a bunch of hairless monkeys, we've done pretty well, you know? <laughs> um, so, okay, so that when we run down the list of ways in which you could cross the mind-melting distances between the stars. I, I think, Rick, really, everybody should spend a little bit of time working out with those numbers, like how far away the stars are. I mean, it's really, it's hard to sort of get in your gut just how mm -hmm. distant the stars are. Um, so, uh, the you know, the first, so we can start with stuff that we totally know and work upwards. So one way is is hibernation. Right. You know, if the speed, so we believe every, there's nothing that tells us that you can get around the fact that the speed of light is a constant and nothing can go faster than it. Right. That for the physics, we understand that's the way it is. So um, if you're going to go slower than the speed of light or as close to the speed of light as you can, then the stars are pretty far away. If a star is a hundred light years away, it's a hundred years to get there. Right. Um, so, but you know, you could do maybe hibernate if your biology doesn't allow you, you know, if you only have a 70 year, 80 year lifespan, then you can hibernate if that's possible. 
You could also do century ships where like, you know, you have ships where like one human generation after the other is born and live and die. And it's the great, great grandparent, grand, great, great grandkids that arrive there. Um, you know, those are pretty expensive and hard to do, you know, I mean, and also if you're going to do that, you're, you know, it's slow, right? So one of the weird things about having the speed of light be a limit means that interstellar civilizations may not be possible, right? If it takes 200 years, like 200 year, light years is the next door for us, right? That is 200 light years away is still the, the block, you know, on the block. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it takes 200 years to get somewhere, you know, and your typical lifespan is 80 or 90 years, then like, how do you have diplomacy? How do you have, you don't really, it'd be hard to have a coherent civil, stellar civilization, right? Um, Okay, so you go past that, then you start to get into things like, well, okay, what about a warp drive, right? Because Einstein's theory of relativity does allow for this idea of bending space-time so that, you know, if you don't want to actually go from point A to point B, can you bring point A and B together and kind of hop through space, you know, hop through curved space via like a wormhole or a warp drive. And I cover these possibilities. And like with warp drives, there is a solution to the general relativistic equations, the Akubre drive, as they call it, um, that actually does, you know, because here's the interesting thing. Nothing can travel through space faster than the speed of light, but space itself or space-time itself can move it at whatever speed it wants. So the Akubre drive is this idea that you could create a warp bubble that sort of bends itself through space, that sort of propels, it's a you know a bubble of space-time that is moving through space-time at whatever speed you want. Uh, so you know uh, the, the ideas of general relativity give you some ways of maybe thinking about how you could have it, uh, but here's the problem. The only way any of this works is you have to have what's called exotic matter, to be able to bend space and time this way. And it doesn't exist, right? Exotic matter is basically, you take the, you know, it's something, you got these equations, you say like, oh, if I just had a term that, you know, had a minus sign right here, <laughs> then I could make all this work. Um, and that's literally what we do when we play with those equations. But there's there's no evidence for exotic matter. It's literally just something we dreamed up, you know, and put into the equations. So, you know, that's the problem with exotic matter. Now, you know, maybe some super advanced civilization has come across that. Uh, I don't know. But that's, you know, that, that's the problem with exotic matter. And then you get to quantum mechanics, right? And quantum mechanics is just so weird that who knows what's <laughs> hiding in it, you know? But that's really, then we're pulling stuff kind of out of our butt. Um, so that those are kind of, you know, the possibilities. Now, I know that there are some people, UFO people, who really are into extra dimensions. And I have a whole chapter on extra dimensions, on what extra dimensions mean scientifically. Um, Because it's one of the most beautiful and coolest ideas in mathematical physics. The idea of being able to like, you know, do the mathematics for objects that have more than three dimensions, more than three Mm -hmm. spatial dimensions. And it's just, I love it. I love talking about it. I love thinking about it. But the problem is there is zero evidence, zero. I mean, really zero, because people have looked that there's any more than three dimensions of space. You know, you can go forward and back, you can go right and left, and you can go up and down. And that's pretty much it. So, you know, from that scientific point of view, there's just, you know, because people, there was ideas like string theory, which was playing with the idea of extra dimensions, but those ideas just didn't work out. They have not played out. I mean, to me, string theory is really, is kind of a dead end. So, you know, so I examine all those possibilities. Well, you know, who knows, you know, again, where we'll go. But if you're, you know, if you're trying to, take take a ladder 
you know, and begin with the physics we know. And I think that's really important because if not, you're just making up science fiction stories. Um, that's what you got to work with. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's always that frustrating, um, I guess, conundrum of like our own limitations as human beings, our own physics, our own logic in terms of all this. But hey, like we like you said, we work with what we have to try to ask those bigger questions. Um, And then you just hope that they converge. Um, Well, okay, so we cover how they could possibly get here, Adam. But um, in terms of us going out and looking for it. Uh, you do cover that as well, the different ways throughout history and now how we are searching for that. And we've been saying it throughout this whole conversation, um, techno signatures. It's kind of the big buzzword nowadays with a lot of search for for alien life. Um, so let's go there, man. Would you mind kind of breaking down what techno signatures truly represent? Because I don't think a lot of people really understand what that term means as opposed to bio signatures. Um, and then on top of all of that second prong question, um, exoplanets, a place where we could search for techno signatures. So, um, yeah. Would you mind maybe breaking all that down for us a little bit? It would be my pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. The Somewhere in the Skies podcast is free to listen to every week, but if you would like to help support the show, we have a very active Patreon page where you give what you think the show is worth. In return, you'll get early access to the main show, bonus episodes, and priority to ask our guests your listener questions. Your support truly makes the show continue and grow. So to learn more and to join, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies this podcast is brought to you by eHarmony the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you how are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. Jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
you know, what's amazing is like, so when I was in graduate school in the late eighties and early nineties, like, you know, astrobiology just wasn't a subject like SETI was kind of marginalized, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, the, Mar- the, the Viking landers in 76 had landed on Mars. They hadn't, there was a little biology experiment that hadn't really gone anywhere. So, you know, it was kind of like there was nowhere to go. And then two amazing things happened. One was we found this rock from Mars in Antarctica. It was literally a chunk of Mars that had been blown into space. And it appeared to have what looked like maybe some evidence of fossil life. Um, that turned out not to be true, but it got us starting. It propelled us to start looking at Mars again um, and thinking about uh, the whole idea of looking for life uh, in um, microbial life in the solar system. And then in 1995, the really big thing is we discovered for the first time the first planet orbiting another star, an exoplanet. This is also a question that goes back to 2,500 or goes back 2,500 years. People have been arguing about. I can't tell you how many scientific careers over history were ruined by someone saying I discovered an exoplanet, right? And then it would turn mm-hmm. out to not to be true, and that guy's you know or girl's career was 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 ended. Um, but so in 1995, we had our first conclusive proof of a planet orbiting another star. And then, you know, within 10, 20 years or 10, 15 years, we had a census. We knew that every planet, every star in the sky hosted a family of worlds. And we knew that one out of five of those had a star uh, or had a planet in the right place, at least of the sun-like ones, had a planet in the right place for life to form where liquid water could be on the surface. So this exoplanet revolution just blew the doors off of everything. Suddenly, we knew exactly where to look for life, right? And the original SETI, that's not the way it was. You just sort of pointed things at sun-like stars and hoped for the best, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the exoplanet revolution was one of the most important parts of this new age of astrobiology. The second thing that happened was the development of, the, um, of what we'll call this technique, this amazing technique called atmospheric characterization. And what it meant was our telescopes had gotten so powerful and the instruments we put on our telescopes had gotten so powerful that we could see into the atmospheres of these worlds that are 10, 20, 100 light years away. And we could sniff out, so to speak, the composition of that atmosphere. We could tell what chemical compounds were in that atmosphere. Now, why is that important? That has to do with the another astrobiological revolution, which was learning Earth's full history, seeing the full, you know, 3.8 billion year history of Earth and life together. Because one of the things we've learned from that is that Earth has been many planets, you know, many different kinds of planets across that time. And life has been the driving force for a lot of those. For example, oxygen. The only reason, you know, I can take a nice big breath of oxygen is because life put the oxygen in the atmosphere. Before, uh, you know, about 2 billion years ago, before like a new form of photosynthesis was invented by microbes, the Earth's, Earth had life and it had no oxygen in it. So the presence of oxygen in the atmosphere of Earth is a biosignature. So biosignature. Someone looking at Earth from light years away could look at our planet, see that there's oxygen in the atmosphere and, and, and deduce like that planet has a biosphere. So... Mm-hmm. This process of atmospheric characterization where you can see how life has changed a planet, changed the atmosphere, was the beginning of this great revolution 
that we now started to figure out how to search for biosignatures, all kinds of biosignatures. Oxygen was the first one, but now we're getting very, very sophisticated in thinking about uh, how to do it. We don't have to rely on Earth's history, right? We're starting to think a lot about agnostic signatures of life where, you know, could be a completely different uh, biochemistry, but we'd still be able to tell that that planet had something going on with it that was not, that, that could only happen because of life. And then along at the same time, while this is happening in the 2000s and 2010s, Jill Tarter, the great hero of SETI, right? This, this woman who, you know, has been at the forefront of SETI for decades, said, look, if you're going to search for biosignatures, if NASA's going to fund, and it was, a lot of uh, research in biosignatures, how could you avoid also thinking about technosignatures, right? How can you mm. not think about the possibility of looking for you know, the presence of industrial chemicals in the atmosphere, right? You know, what about city lights? What about, you know, there's all this whole range of things that you could look for in the exact same way that you're going to look for biosignatures that will tell you there's a civilization there harvesting energy and doing work um, uh, in the service of the civilization. So that was where, that's where the term technosignatures came from. And then it was in uh, 2018, uh, that actually, this is, I talk about this in the book, this conference. Na Someone in Congress said, you need to spend 10 million, told NASA, you need to spend $10 million on techno signatures. And NASA was like, what? You know, it's like, uh, okay. So they had to have a meeting. They called us together. They called a bunch of us together who were interested in this to have a meeting to say, okay, look, if they give us this money, which in the end they didn't, uh, what would we do with it? So we had this amazing three-day meeting in Houston at the the lunar the lunar science uh, very storied NASA facility um, to talk about this, and it was the most amazing, exciting meeting I have ever been at in my entire life. Right, everybody mm. had crazy ideas, but also trying to systematize for the first time the crazy ideas. Uh, and out of that came a bunch of us decided to put in this proposal to NASA to you know say, look, all right, we want to look for atmospheric techno signatures. We want to design a study. We're not going to look yet. We're going to do the theoretical research to tell observers what they should look for if they're looking for um, uh, techno signatures from planets. And, and that was the beginning. And so now what people really need to understand is all, already with the JWST, the, J, you know, the James Webb Space Telescope, it's at the mm -hmm. hairy edge, but it's possible that the JWST could detect both biosignatures or techno signatures. We did a paper where we showed that chlorofluorocarbons, right? This chemical that, you know, we pumped into the atmosphere kind of by mistake, but you could detect that with the JWST from like 10 light years away. So game on, man, right now, you know, and going into the future with the better telescopes we're going to build, we have the we have the capacity or we're going to have the capacity to find alien life where it lives on alien planets. Wow. You know, and I feel like that, Adam, is like the only positive to come out of any sort of pollution is the possibility <laughs> that it could lead us to finally finding some sort of alien life um, yeah. or them finding us. Let's be completely right. honest. Right. You know? We've had. Yeah. And the thing is about the pollution, you know, CFCs, right. We did that by mistake. But, you know, there's yeah. lots of reasons. And we're, we have a paper that we're working on right now that you might purposely put 
chemicals into your atmosphere. So for example, chlorofluorocarbons, they're bad for the ozone, but if you wanted to turn Mars into a habitable world, which we do, eventually we may try. CFCs are great. They are very, they're chemically inert, but they're great greenhouse gases. Hmm. So that means that like, yeah, if you could pump Mars's atmosphere up with CFCs, you could raise the temperature to the point where like it would be warm enough to wander around with just like an air mask on. So, you know, absolutely these different kinds of chemicals you might have reasons but it's not just it's not just chemicals city lights there was a paper that showed that you could for a world that had larger amounts of artificial illumination you would be able to see that in the light from the you know from the planet you'd be able to see that there was artificial illumination you'd be able to see the possibilities that they were using uh, that a civilization was using solar panels of any form uh, the reflected light would actually carry the signature of uh, the solar panels. So the the list goes on and on and on. And that's what we're developing. That's what our job is, is to carry out these studies to explore different kinds of techno signatures, because starting now, you know, we can start looking for them. I love it. I love that. Um, it's amazing. Well, it's really exciting. it is. I, I, yeah, I, really I, cool. I can I can hear the passion in your voice, Adam. I w- what I would have given to be a fly on a wall at that conference, by oh, the way, that so I can't even imagine. Nobody how, got any sleep. <laughs> I was going to say how hard you guys probably party. Um, yeah, sure. yeah, a lot of beer. Um, like, yeah. I mean, it's just I, I you know, the you know, sometimes people in the UFO community can say like, "Oh, scientists are close-minded" or whatever. You had to be at this meeting to hear some of the ideas that were getting batted around. We were talking about billion-year-old civilizations and how they evolve. Like, what happens to a civilization after, you know, 100,000 years, a million years of continuous evolution? Does it stay hold? Does it break up? What kinds of, you know, what kinds of technology might they evolve? You know, if you become... Uh, if you you know become AI or if AI takes over, what does that look like? I mean, there were some really cool ideas that were getting bounced around. That's well, and that's kind of um, what you cover in sort of the remaining chapters of the book. Again, without giving away too yeah. much, I I cannot recommend this book enough. I'm just going to say that flat out. Oh, great! Thank um, you. <laughs> of course, of course, you you cover everything from um, how we may like communicate with aliens if we do make contact um and you cover things as like the ethics of making contact and and what that would look like too and um kind of the possibility of um everything even ancient aliens like you said you guys theorized about a billion year old civilization somewhere or you know in ancient aliens is a big thing in the world today no matter what you think of it or uh, how controversial it is um, it's out there. The theory's out there. So could you maybe break down that last chapter of the book for us? This was by far my favorite chapter um, of the book um, in terms of, yeah, how would we communicate with something? Let's say it is AI or um, or it's so, forgive the pun, alien to us that we don't know how we could possibly communicate with it. Um, yeah, maybe break down that last chapter for us a little bit if you don't mind. Yeah, that chapter was super fun to write, too, because really what I wanted to explore was how aliens will alien be or how alien will aliens be. And the answer is very right. Yeah, that's really the thing. You know, what's cool about about this subject is you got to push your imagination to the edge. Right. But still bounded with science. Right. So uh, science is really constrained imagination. Right. You can go to whatever heights you want. 
But you got to use like the laws of physics and chemistry and Darwinian evolution, which we think are, is going to be pretty, pretty universal to somehow bound your thinking. So you don't just fall off into writing science fiction novels, right? We want to mm -hmm. somehow ground ourselves so that we can kind of systematically explore the options. So one of the first things I talked about was alien minds, right? Because alien minds are really, you know, what, what the, what is the cognitive structure of a yeah. mind that has evolved under entirely different kinds of evolutionary backgrounds going to be like, um, you know, so there's this great, and when it comes to communication, right, you know, people, there's this great idea from Carl Sagan that, oh, we'll teach them our math, right? That's been the whole foundation, like in the movie Contact, you know, mm -hmm. we're, you know, we'll meet aliens and then we'll teach them like, oh, look, this is how we do one plus one and that equals two and we'll show them the symbols and then we'll work our way up to pi and the circumference of a circle. And then, you know, after a while, you know, we'll all be friends, you know, we'll all be you know <laughs> sharing our favorite Netflix shows. Yeah. Um, but really that idea may not, I mean, maybe it'll work, but it may not work at all because- it assumes that our math, the way we structure, think about math, is universal. And that's, it's entirely possible that's not true. That really are the way, we invented our math in a way that our brains, which grew up on the, you know, the the the, um, the plains of Africa, were useful for. Imagine, as I said, imagine um, a species that does, that is, that is what we would call like a liquid brain, a liquid body, like, you know, amoeba. They have, you know, if they want to grab something, they kind of reach the, a, a pseudopod out, like, you know, grab something and pull it back. They don't have digits. Would they even have integers? Would the, not, would the idea of one, two, and three make any sense to them, right? Hmm. So uh, so that's a really interesting possibility. And there's, uh, you know, there's that great movie Arrival, which maybe some people have seen. Yes. Um, where I love, I think it's, that's one of my favorite, it's like really smart. I mean, I love, you know, I you know, I love Star Wars and Star Trek. You know, give me all the laser blasters you can give me. But Arrival <laughs> was like one of these really quiet, thoughtful movies about aliens. Yes. And so they send in like, you know, these these heptapods arrive and they send in a Carl Sagan kind of physicist guy and then a linguist. Right. And the Carl Sagan guy goes in and you know tries to do the Carl Sagan thing with math and spectacularly fails immediately. And it's the linguist who understands that language has to do with like the whole embodied experience that you have to be, it's not abstract. It's actually very much about being in a body and having experience. She's the one who makes contact and then realizes that their whole experience is entirely different. Like they are, um, they move, they live simultaneously in the past, present and future. And I, I really thought about that a lot, how, you know, maybe it's biology that determines physics, not the other way around in some sense that like that's, it determines what parts of the big book of physics are actually accessible to you. So that's mm -hmm. a great idea. Uh, and then the ethics part was really, I wanted to talk a little bit about, I mean, we talked about, I talked a lot about just the, you know, ethics of what, what kind of ethics might, you know, different, depending on your uh, evolutionary background you might have. But I really wanted to cover the idea of Medi messaging extraterrestrial intelligence where like you know a few times people have pointed giant telescopes and sent some kind of message to a distant star and that's been very controversial because you know as anybody who's read the um uh the three-body problem you know maybe you don't want to do that right maybe you don't want to stick your head above the grass and be like hey i'm here i'm tasty you know come on over <laughs> um and i kind of I'm kind of in that thing. I think like we just don't know what's out there, right? And it's 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 I don't think it's a good idea just assume that because civilizations will be older that you know, that may be older than us that they're suddenly like wearing togas, you know, and meditating, right? I, you mm -hmm. know, who knows what 
And this is, you know, I love science fiction. As I said, I read lots of science fiction. This is a theme that shows up in a lot of really good science fiction stories about this idea of, you know, the dark forest or one idea, it's a, 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 a book, I've forgotten the name, but the idea that there are wolves between the stars, you know, mm. you gotta, and so you got to be careful. Uh, so that's why I, that was kind of part. I mean, there's a lot more in that chapter about ethics. Um, and then finally, the ancient alien. I, I think they, for us, ancient aliens meant something different. Where we did a paper with David Kipping um, uh, from the Columbia, and it was a very sort of detailed theoretical paper to ask this question: If we find aliens, if we find signals of aliens, not necessarily communications, but we just find evidence for a, a civilization, would we expect it to be younger, older, uh, younger, our age, or older? And by you know. By our age, we're talking anything within, you know, a few thousand years, right? So we're, you know, mm-hmm. we're doing the science thing of being very sort of order of magnitude, as we call it. And the result of these calculations using what's called Bayesian probability, um, uh, you know, David was very good. David's a real master, kung fu master with uh, this kind of thing. And we, uh, the conclusion was that it, it'll be older, you know, quite possibly much older. So, you know, that's where the ancient aliens comes from for us is that, if there are, if we make contact with a civilization or find a civilization, it will probably be quite a bit older than us. And what does that imply? How can you think systematically, right? How can you lay again? Because this is what science does. We don't just want to write a science fiction story. We want to somehow lay out in a systematic way the possibilities for civilizations that have been around and contiguous, you know, or continuous for. A million years. What is a you know, we really we've been around as a technological civilization for uh, a century, maybe two, right. depending on how you define it. What does a million years look like? Like, what do you become? You know, yeah. So super cool. Yeah, absolutely. It really does, and that's what I love about this question of alien is it, it tells us so much more. I think about ourselves yeah. than actually yeah. the aliens. It, it really does put that mirror back on us. Be like, hmm. What could we be? What could we aspire right. to be? Or uh, or it could be a warning, a cautionary yeah. tale. You know, exactly. Too. Both of those. Right. And I think that's the importance of looking is that, you know, if we did find a civilization and it would probably be older than us, that would be enormous comfort. Right. Because as of right mm-hmm. now, you know, we've got all these problems in the world, climate change and, you know, the rise of AI and, you know, whatever, just our nuclear war is still clearly hovering over us. You know, does. So the question is, does any civilization make it? Is it does the does the universe do long live technological civilizations? That's an open question. So to find just yeah. one civilization doesn't matter whether we talk to them or not, just to know that like, oh, yeah, OK, yeah, sure. This is something the universe does. Yeah, that would be good. Absolutely. And hopefully. Uh, yeah, that would be very good. Very comforting, like you said. Um, well, last question for you, Adam. What do you hope people will take away from the book? What's like the big thing you hope that this will contribute to the question? Are we alone? And uh, if not, where do we go from there? Right. Uh, the main thing I want people to get take away is excitement. Like, you know, people should be pumped. This is amazing. We live, I mean, really, how often, how many generations, you know, how many people get to be around when a 2,500-year-old question gets answered, right? Now, you know, I don't know. I can't tell you for sure it's going to get answered. I can't tell you for sure that uh, what the answer is going to be. But here's the thing I can be sure of. Over the next 10, 20, 30 years, you know, and science is always about a long game. You know, you can't learn something amazing unless you put the time into it. But the thing I can tell you is we're going to have data. For the first time, we're going to have actual hard 
data related to the question as opposed to just yelling at each other's opinions, man, you know, about it. So this is, I want people to, to see like, wow, man, this is amazing. We're about to find out. And then I want them to really start to, you know, to understand. So when I want them to be ready so that whether it's UFOs or science you know, or astronomical science, when someone says we found it, I want them to be ready with their skeptical hats on, but also their, you know, their background that the book gives them to be able to know how to evaluate that claim. Right. And then be ready to think about it. And then if that claim is true, what the consequences of that claim are. I love it. I love it. Be ready, guys. Be ready October 24th <laughs> when the book releases. It's the little book of aliens by Adam Frank and Adam First of all, thank you. Thank you for being so open to coming on a UFO podcast, mm -hmm. first and foremost. Um, I think it's very important to have these conversations when when you deal with such a, uh, a speculative, uh, theory-based conversation like I do as a UFO podcast, um, to get on the ground and think objectively about, oh, yeah, who could be piloting these possible aerial phenomena or at least behind them? Um, I think it's important to really step back and look at these questions because, like I said, no matter what UFOs are or aren't or no matter what aliens are or aren't, it tells us so much more about where we've been, where we're going. And um, I think that's what I really took away from your book is um, hope. There, there's good. so much hope and well, it was so accessible. Um, like I said, guys, October 24th is when the book comes out. I cannot recommend it enough. Um, where... And when can we get the book? I, I said when, but where can we find it, Adam? Well, you can already pre-order, you know, at your at your favorite pre-ordering book, you know, Amazon or the Harcourt uh, or Harper Collins, excuse me, Harper Harper Collins, or um, you know, pretty much anywhere that you can pre-order books. So it's available now. Of course, it'll be delivered on the the twenty fourth. So yeah, that's what I, I encourage people to pre-order. Get yours now. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I I hope they enjoy it. I hope they you know that that it's. I, I wrote the book in a way that was really meant to be fun. You know, even if you don't yes. usually read science books, science-based books, you know, I'm from Jersey, uh, as you can, you know, met New York Mets here, you know, I'm from the tri-state ethnic. And I kind of just, in this book, I've written a lot of science, popular science books, but this one I just let loose with, you know, as if, you know, I was just having a conversation with my buds, you know, and that's, that's yep. kind of the way I did it because that was fun. That was actually the most fun for me. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It, like I said, it did feel unlike any other book I've really read on this topic in a very long time. So again, Great. I got to thank you for that, Adam. And uh, once more, I got to thank you for coming on Somewhere in the Skies today. I really enjoyed this. This was a great conversation. Thank you.
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com covered.